John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, obey my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, said to him, Lord, are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? Jesus replied, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I have told you. I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really love me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. I have told you these things before they happen, so that when they do happen, you will believe. I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me, so that the world will know that I love the Father. Come, let's be going. I think you're taking my sermon. Come back here. Thank you, Mark. You took my copy of John chapter 14. You have yours, I have mine. This isn't the underground church where you can only have one we have to share with everybody. We are rich. Thank you. Peace. You know, one time I interviewed about 100 people uh, over about a month's period just walking down the boardwalk in San Diego, going to the mall. Everywhere I would go, I would just interview people and I would ask them, if you could have one thing 
in this life, what would it be? And I was shocked that every single person said peace. Isn't that amazing? Like when they stopped and thought about it. It wasn't homes. It wasn't a new car. Life can really be hard and chaotic. How many of you ever woke up in the middle of the night with a, what felt like a panic attack? Anybody besides me? And you got this anxiety running through you, and you, or you wake up in the morning, and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> right? That's not the way God designed the earth to be, but the earth was thrown into chaos after Adam and Eve brought Satan's trick to live independently from God, and they were kicked out of the presence of God, the peace of God, uh, the Garden of Eden, where everything was provided for them just right, kind of like our children who think they have it so rough at home. They have no idea. It's paradise. I mean, if something's missing from the refrigerator, you go to the magic list. Do you guys know what the magic list is? It, it's, it's, a little, it's a little piece of paper. Ours is, you know, over by the telephone, uh, well, the house phone. And you, if there's something missing from the pantry or the refrigerator, all you have to do is walk over to this little list and write it down. Pumpkin spiced bagels. And miracles upon miracles, the next day there's pumpkin spiced bagels in the refrigerator. How does that happen? And 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 when they're and when they And when it's not there the next day, they, they, are, they are very disappointed. I wrote down a pumpkin spice bagels, and it's been two days. We still don't have them. I'm like, wow. Ooh, we need to rein that in a little bit. Then they move out, and that's when they find out they've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> or they willingly ran from the worst place on earth, which was home, and then they realize, oh, my God. Gosh, my laundry was done. My meals were cooked. There was a money tree named Dad. I remember the first time we had we had we had our, our firstborn Elliot, and I remember when I was at my wits' end. He was only like six months old, and he had, he had already won. I mean, he had beat me at six months old. I called my mom to commiserate, to complain. Mom, it's so hard. And I'm telling her about how it's just rocked my world to have our first child. And my, 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 my daily schedule has been completely blown up. And I'm not getting any sleep. And, you know, and I had to take him to the doctors three times because he had colic. And, you know, and all of a sudden I hear on the other, other side of the, the line, giggling. I said, why are you laughing? And she couldn't stop. She just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. It's horrible. I haven't recovered from that, mother, in case you're watching or listening. I forgive you. Jesus opens this. Yeah, we have to remember we've moved from Jesus' public ministry now where he was just beat on and persecuted and mocked and accused of being demon-possessed, the deceiver of the people and everybody abandoning him and the religious leaders trying to kill him. And I mean, it was a, it was a arduous three and a half years. Now he's spending the last week of his life with and his he turns to friends. them and says in verse one, don't let your hearts be troubled. How precious. What a shepherd. You know, Jesus said one time he was looking out over the multitudes and he said, he had compassion on the multitudes of humanity. He said, they are harassed and downcast like a sheep without a shepherd. So in Jesus' mind, having a shepherd is the resolution to anxiety. But you see, he was talking there about those who had no shepherd. Those who follow Christ, we have the best shepherd. He calls himself the good shepherd. He's called the chief shepherd. And yet, why do we still live with such anxiety and fear? 
Today I'm going to talk about the three big keys to peace that Jesus, our great shepherd, gives to us in this chapter. I love the way he opens this, though. So tender. He knows that we're fretful. He knows we're fearful. He knows we're anxious. And so he says, don't let. Isn't that a powerful opening statement? Don't let. What does that communicate? We have a choice. He's speaking here to his own followers. He's not speaking to the world right now. He's not speaking to those of you that are listening or watching or here in church this morning. This, he's not speaking specifically to those who have not yet named him their shepherd. Because without Christ being your shepherd, you are going to live with tremendous fear and anxiety all the days of your life. When Jesus come in this chapter, you heard, him, you heard him say, golden voice, read what Jesus said, which was, I give you a gift, peace, not the kind of peace the world offers to you. I give you my peace. You see, when you receive Jesus Christ as your shepherd, as your savior, as your God, the first thing that happens is you experience peace and the core of your being. Whenever I pray for people and they receive Christ, I ask them this question. What do you feel right now on the inside? And I get two answers only every single time. And I've been leading people to Christ for 35 years. And I get the same two answers every single time. Either peace or joy. That's the mark of Christ entering somebody's soul. Isn't that beautiful? But hanging on to that peace and joy is the battle between here and there, isn't it? And I'm going to give you a little preview of where we're headed. Staying very, very, very close to the shepherd is the key to maintaining your peace. He says, let not, let not, don't let your heart Your heart is like one writer says the main fort, the main citadel of your life is your heart. The Bible says, guard your hearts with all diligence, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the boundaries and issues and the parameters of your life. The heart is a manufacturing center of fear and dread and lust and joy and peace and faith. The heart, that's why he says, guard your heart. Jesus said, out of, your, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everything's generated in the heart. That's why he says, don't let your heart be troubled. The word troubled there means put into a hurry and confused. Don't let your heart be that way. So what answers does he give to us to help us not let our hearts be troubled? There's three keys he gives to us. Heaven I'm going to give them all three up home. front, and then we're going to unpack them. Number, number two, Jesus is our way home. And number three, the Holy Spirit is our comforter on the way home. Amen? These are the three things Jesus gives us in this chapter. So I'm going to unpack these. Heaven is our home. Do you know that, well, first I'm going to say this. What did Jesus just say to them? Heaven is is your home. Look what he says in John chapter 14, looking back again. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. He gave them the eternal perspective. You have trouble now. It's okay. It's just temporary. In fact, look what, look what Peter says. One of the first followers of Christ. He says this in 1 Peter 1.24. As the scripture says, people are like grass. Their beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. The older you get, the more you know that is true. You just put your belt a little tighter, right? You cover stuff up a little more, wear baggier things. As gravity just starts sucking your skin down to the earth. And it just doesn't stop until you're gone. (laughs) Isn't it it amazing 
how much harder it is to lose weight the older you get, how wounds don't heal as quickly. I mean, we're just deteriorating. And, and we try to puff it up, we try to pump it up, we try to cover it up, and it just gets worse and worse. And now they got plastic surgery, which is great, so we can pretend even longer that somehow we're going to defy death as it just invades our bodies. And then the body snatcher comes, thank God, and we get out of here, and guess what we get when we get to heaven? A glorious body with no wrinkles and no gravity. It's perfect. Josiah reads the Bible every night. He goes through his medical procedure for an hour every night that he has to go through. And during the medical procedure, there's nothing for him to do but just sit there. And so he reads the Bible. And I walk in and I say, hey, what did you read? And he said, I just read about how in heaven, and he's saying it to me like he can't believe it. It's the first time he's read it. In heaven, I'm a, listen, we're talking about our son who has an amputated leg, spina bifida, lives in a wheelchair. And he said, I just read in the Bible where in heaven there's no suffering and sorrow and sadness. And he would probably like to say in school, right? I mean, <laughs> and discipline. And I said, what did you, what did you, I mean, this was a moment because here I'm looking at my handicapped son and he's reading this for the first time in the Bible. We don't teach our children anything at home. They have to find it for themselves in the Bible. You would think, (laughs) you would think that's like one of the first scriptures I would have shown him when we adopted him. Hey, by the way, it gets better. And I said, what did you think when you saw that? He, He looked at me and said, Seriously? <laughs> I said, yeah, buddy. <laughs> Seriously. That's great news, isn't it? That's why Jesus is giving them the eternal perspective. He says, again, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever you see the difference between the temporary contrasted with the permanent and that word is the good news that was preached to you look what james says jesus's half brother james 4 13 and 4 through 15 come now you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to such and such city we're going to spend a year there buy and sell and make a profit whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You ought to say, instead you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Now, I want to say a couple things about this as a sidebar. Should we plan for the future? Absolutely. All he's saying is, as you plan for the future, say, these are our plans if the Lord wills. Okay. Secondly, There are many precious brothers and sisters in Christ. I just believe differently than what they teach. And we'll see see who's right when we get to heaven. But let me give you my perspective. If the Lord's will here is tacked on to future plans, it's not tacked on to sickness and disease and suffering and hardship and all that. Jesus bore our sins, our shame, our sickness, our disease. He took the curse in his body on the cross. So whenever I pray for people to be saved, healed, delivered, I never say, if it be your will. Because I believe his will was made plain as day on that cross 2,000 years ago. If it be your will is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane about to go to the cross and he's saying, hey, is there another way besides this? But if not, your will be done. Sometimes you've got to go through things to get to the other side. But that eternal perspective is so important. You think about Moses. Moses was going to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. Do we understand what that means in, in, in world history and real life reality? He was going to be the ruler of the most powerful country 
on the planet. The whole Egyptian army at his whim, all the riches of Egypt, all the fame and fortune and power, and he turned it down. How? Why? What was so, what was more powerful than that? He was the heir to the throne. Do you know what it was? God showed him heaven. And he said, you choose this or that. It was the eternal perspective that saved his life. It says he turned down the passing, passing, the passing pleasures of sin because he had his eyes on the reward. Oh, yeah. Do you? Do you have your eyes on heaven? Or are they so transfixed on the earth that everything stresses you out? Because everything right now is so important. Not so much. Doing the will of of the Lord is the only important thing because that's the only thing that lasts. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. Then halfway through his life, he got bored. Actually, what happened was he married the wrong women. Notice I said women. And I love women. Women are awesome. Pinnacle of God's creation. Whoa, man. I mean, that's why you called a woman, right? It's like, God created, whoa, man, better than the drafts, better than hippopotamuses, better than alligators, better than creepy crawling things. He created all the creatures. Adam said, nah, nah, nah. So, ladies, you're better than animals is basically what I'm saying. You're the pinnacle of God's creation. Adam sees Eve and goes, whoa, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, so I love women. But, I mean, I love you more than any other woman that's ever existed and ever will. I'm talking eternal love. The eternal, remember the ring is eternal. It's forever. Just you and me, baby. Got to clean that up. Okay. Let me say this. I honor women. Now I've completely lost my train of thought. But, but listen for you that are missionary dating. God told Solomon, do not marry women outside of the faith. They will turn you away from me to their gods. But Solomon did it. So he lived the last half of his life in disillusionment and misery because he disconnected from his God. And at the end, so he writes writes the book of Ecclesiastes, which is just miserable. I mean, one of my children just read the book of Ecclesiastes and they were like, what? What? That was sad and weird and depressing and and it's in the Bible. And I said, Yeah, that that is what a person's life looks like when they turn What's away the purpose, from God. Really? You're born, you go to school, get a degree, get a job, pay the bills, take a vacation and die. I mean really, what's the purpose of life? I said, that is what it looks like when somebody turns. So the last verse in that book of Ecclesiastes, though, he he sums it all up with this one statement. After he says, all is vanity, all is vanity, all is vanity, all is vanity. Chapter 12, last verse. To fear the Lord and to do his will is the purpose of man. Out. Drop the mic. So the sooner we come to that place, the sooner you find peace. Which brings us to the second thing that Jesus... Oh, by the way, I want to give you a little caveat here. We don't catch this in our um, Western mindset because it's not part of our culture. But these folks knew exactly what Jesus was talking to them about. 
when he says, I go to my father's home to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and get you. That is the wedding metaphor of their Eastern culture. Did you know that? The, the, the father determines the time when his son goes to pay the price for his bride. So the son leaves the father's house, goes to his, his future bride's house, pays the price. Then he leaves for 12 months, goes back to his father's home to prepare living accommodations for he and his bride. Then the father knows the time. It's roughly 12 months, but the father knows the day when he sends his son to go get his bride. In the meantime, the bride has been going through ceremonial purification, which is what the Bible says the body of Christ, us right now, are being purified or cleansed by the word. So right now we are being made into a beautiful bride for Jesus. And then there's going to be a wedding ceremony in heaven when we get there. The church, the bride of Christ, the Bible calls us, are going to become one or marry Jesus when we get into heaven. And then there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a seven-day party, which some believe is the seven years of tribulation in the earth. So it looks like this: the the, the father tells the son, "Go pay." For your bride. He goes, pays the price for the bride, which is Christ coming the first time and dying on the cross for our sins. Then Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. They knew what that meant. So the, the groom goes back to the father's house, prepares a place. Then when the father says it's time, he comes back. The bride doesn't know when he's coming. So you know what would happen? Somebody would go be in, in, in ahead of the groom and shout, here comes the groom. Here comes the groom. Well, the Bible says when the church is raptured, that Jesus will come with a trumpet blast from heaven and a shout, a great shout. That's wedding uh, metaphor. And then we get raptured out of here. We marry Jesus. We have a seven-day party while the earth is going through hell. Then the second coming comes, and he's coming on a white horse with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And he cleans up the whole mess, creates a new heaven and the earth, and boom, there we are in eternity with him. How do you want to spend your life right now? With that in mind, or eat, drink, and let's be married for tomorrow we die? It's just a question. So heaven is our home. Let's live, live for there, not here. We can enjoy here, but we're living for there. Secondly, Jesus is our way home. So the first source of peace Jesus gives to his fretful sheep is, look, this is temporary. You're going to go through some hard things. But it's all temporary. And I'm preparing a place for you right now in my father's home. And I'm, when it's time, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get you and I'm going to take you home. So hang in there. You're going to be all right. And then Jesus says in verse 4, And you know the way. And you know where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. We have no idea where you're going. How, how can we know the way? What, what, was, what was the problem here? Who was that, Thomas? Thomas, like the rest of us, many times are so natural world, materialistic, today focused, that we don't understand that many times Jesus is speaking to us in spiritual realities. Like here, Jesus is talking about... His father's home, which is in heaven, which is unseen, and it's futuristic. All Thomas could think of was now. And when Jesus says, I'm going and you know the way, if Thomas is thinking he's talking about going to another city where he's going to, uh, where he's going to, to, to build his political um, regime which they were going to be a part of. That's why they forsook all, the family, their friends, their jobs, the, 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 the temple. I mean, they lost their reputations. They, they gave up everything to follow Jesus. Now Jesus says, all right, I'm leaving, and you, you, you know where I'm going. And Thomas is like, where, 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 where are you going? What town are you going to? we got to follow you there. Thomas could not see that Jesus was talking about a completely different there. And Jesus 
has told them, I'm leaving and I'm going to suffer badly. And then I'm going to die. Now you have to understand, in, in this world that they were living in, this was really bad news. In his mind, there was going to be a political regime, and Jesus was going to be uh, the leader, and he was going to overthrow Caesar and take the Roman oppression off of Israel, and Israel was going to reign and rule again right now in the earth. And, of course, that's not at all what Jesus had in mind. But this is really bad news because that means the regime that we thought we were signing up for is not going to happen. Secondly, you... Our captain, our guide, and our friend who we love are going to be tortured and killed. And if that happens, where are we going to go? We can't go home. We can't go to the temple. We... That's why he then says, show us the Father. Just show us God and we'll be okay. Don't we say that sometimes? When you're in the middle of something and you just don't see how you don't have the finances and you're stressing out how we're going to pay our bills. Uh, you have incurable disease and the doctors can't help you. Your marriage is falling apart. Your kid is misbehaving or has walked away from Christ or run away from home or getting in trouble, whatever it might be. And you're so stressed out and you're, and you're like, where's God? Where's God? Just show me God and I will be okay. We've all been there. The psalmist That's half the Psalms. Oh, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why did you let me go through this? That's a human experience. So Thomas says to Jesus, this is really bad news you've given to us. We didn't sign up for this. Just show us God and we'll be okay. And what does Jesus say to him? Verse 9. Again, another example in the Bible where Jesus calls himself God. Verse 9. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? (laughs) Isn't that great? I mean, he's looking at God right in the face. And he says, if you will show me God, I'll be okay. We do the same thing. God gives us his word. God gives us his promises. And we go through a hard time and we say, God, if you would just... Confirm to me that you're with me. I would be okay. Well, he already wrote, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Lord is very near to those who are, who are downcast and crushed in spirit. I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. They can never be snatched out of my hand. I mean, there's, I mean the word of God is just filled with God's revelation to us. The problem was that Jesus' first followers and really everybody who was there only knew of a religious system to follow, not a Savior. You see, when you're following a system, it gets complicated. There's a lot of rules to keep up with. I was raised Catholic, and there's a lot of rules you've got to learn. I didn't know him because I was, I was at the bottom of a pile of six kids in a Roman Catholic uh, family. And then, you know, my mom and I got divorced. And so then you get cast to the outer darkness forever. How long? Because you're not allowed to get divorced back then in the 70s uh, in the Catholic Church. And so then I'm like uh, nothing. And then uh, my dad, you know, won custody for a while. And so then I was going back to the Catholic Church. And I got thrown into an all-guy Catholic high school. And so it's been like since I was in fifth grade, since I was going through, you know, CCD and, and uh, learning the catechism and all that. And, and so now I'm back into a Catholic environment, but I'm, I'm lost. Everybody knows all the stuff you're supposed to do. And I'm kind of like, uh, and they assume I know because I'm in a private Catholic school. And my dad used to be a, Catholic, a leader in the Catholic church. And so we go to the chapel one day. I'm a freshman and, and uh, we're all sitting in the chapel like this. And, and then one at a time they go behind this, they go through this door and something happens back there, and then they come back out. And then it was my turn. I'm like, oh, dear God, what it's, what are, I, I, you're so nervous when you're part of a system where you have to know all you know, the levers and the knobs you've got to push and everything, you know, jump through the hoops. And, and so I go back there, and there's my principal, Father Play. I'm like, oh, it's Father Play. I, it's like you know, the Wizard of Oz. You don't know what's behind the curtain. 
And I sit down, and he says, okay, John, so what sins have you committed since the last time you were in confession? And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, now you listen, you got to understand, he's talking to the bad boy of the school right now, the one putting bubble gum into his keyhole to his office and and, and then getting on the microphone during announcements and commandeering the mic with the door locked. And, you know, I was always scrubbing urinals and the cafeteria floor and all that kind of stuff. So, I, so here's the bad, one of the bad boys sitting in front of him saying, what sins have you committed since the last time you confessed? I thought and thought and I finally said, none. He literally spit and laughed out loud. He could not believe it. I didn't have the Holy Spirit. I had no conviction. I was a sinner, and I was good at it. And I, you know, it's just, I don't know. And he said, say three Hail Marys, and we'll be okay. Well, I couldn't do that either. And so he had to help me. It was his fault. He didn't teach me. What have I told you today that we're going to receive an offering in a little bit, and every one of you that gives $5,000, you can pay for somebody's way out of hell. What would you think? Like if I really meant it and I really took your money. Well, that's what the Pope was doing because he wanted to build St. Peter's Cathedral and he needed more money. That's when Martin Luther had had enough and he nailed the 99 Thesis to the door. That was actually going on. See, when you're following a system instead of a savior... You are at the whim and the will of fallen men and women who will control and shame and use fear and rules to control. That's what Jesus ran into when he came to the earth and went to the epicenter of the religious uh, religion. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way. I want to say to those who have not yet received Jesus, I know you have a question mark in your heart about whether you're going to go to heaven or not. I had that question mark. Everybody does that has not yet come to Christ. And if you think you're going to go because you have done good, the problem is, first of all, the Bible teaches just the opposite, that you're not going to get into heaven on your good works. The other problem, which is a bigger problem, is sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And the penalty for sin is not doing good works. Again, when I was raised in the Catholic Church, if you do bad works, then you can do some good works, and it evens the scales and everything is good. And that's the way you live your life. Like I remember at Christmas time, there was this little manger we had out in the living room, and there's this little crib, and Jesus is in it. And when you do a good deed, you get to put a little straw in the crib. And when the Christmas gets there, the person who has the most straws wins. Is that hell on earth or what? That's religion. It's good merits and bad merits. And so, of course, you know what I did because I'm the youngest. I'm going to lose. I'll just grab a bunch of straw and shove it under Jesus, right? Kind of like when you have a thermometer and you don't want to go to school. So, so you get a thermometer and you put it on the heater and then you hand it to your parents and it's, you know, 107, you know, and you're acting like you're sick. I used to do that. Anybody else used to do that? Put the thermometer on the heater? Come on. You did, uh, Bob. Are you raising your hand, Bob? Are you scratching your head? You and me, man, I feel you. I don't know why they didn't buy that. You can't put straws of good deeds in your life and expect God to be impressed. Because sin, the penalty of sin is eternal separation from God. And that's why Jesus came to pay that price. Philip, this is interesting. Philip knew on day one that Jesus was the Messiah. But three and a half years later, he had not progressed to knowing who Jesus really was. Because when he says to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, I've been with you for three and a half years and you still don't know who I am? 
You see, in our Christian journey and all throughout eternity, our journey is knowing him more and more. He is amazing beyond our ability to comprehend. John, putting his head against Jesus' chest at dinner, the Last Supper. He wasn't doing that when he saw the resurrected Christ. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears, the resurrected Christ. He said his eyes were like fire and his hair was like wool. And John said, I fell down like dead. He wasn't leaning his head against Jesus' chest in that chapter. You see, we can think we know Jesus, especially those of us who have gone to church for five years, 10 years, 30 years, 40 years, 60 years. We have just scratched the surface of the God-man. So if you get bored with Jesus, that's your fault. It just means you're not seeking him. You're, you've been distracted and you're seeking other things and you're, you're bored because you're not in the word. You're not in prayer. You're not in fellowship. You're not worshiping. So the father's not opening himself up to you, which is what Jesus says in this passage. It's amazing. He says, they who love me will follow me and obey me and I will reveal myself to them and my father will love them but doesn't god love everybody yes but not this kind of love there's agape love which is unconditional love everybody then there's phileo love which is friendship love you're the same way if somebody sticks with you through hard times they defend you when nobody else does they stand by your side they meet your need when you're in when in trial and suffering and you when you're, you come out on the other side you look around and who who's still your friend it's like you you are with me that person you are going to tell your deepest secrets to because you trust them. This is what Jesus said to his early disciples. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because you've been with me from the beginning. And now I will show you and explain to you everything. You see, your relationship with Jesus is deeper and deeper and deeper and richer and richer and richer. The more that you follow and obey and follow and obey, turn your back on the world and follow Christ and don't rationalize sin. Call it what it is. Repent and say, Jesus, I submit to your authority. And he releases his presence and revelation of his love and wisdom and insights. And the word of God becomes rich and alive all over again. That's what obedience does. He says, you're obeying me. You're following me. I'm going to reward you. If you're dry and hard-hearted, it might be because you have unrepentant sin in your life and your heart's getting hard. You're rationalizing it, which is why the third source of peace, the third big key he gives to us is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our comforter on our way home. So Jesus says, listen, my sheep, live with the eternal perspective. This life's temporary. Secondly, follow me now and forever. I will lead you through this temporal life into the eternal life. And I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. The world won't be able to see me, but you'll see me. How? How? What? This makes no sense to us. It's a mystery. What are you talking about? When are you going to come back to us? How are we going to see you, but nobody else is? Well, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. When he, when, he, when he rose from the dead, he walked into the upper room where all the disciples were fearful. There they are again, the little sheep. Fearful. Dread. They're coming to get us. The world's caving in. And Jesus walks through the door. I'm mean, like, without opening it. Boom. Hey, everybody. How you doing? There. And he goes, receive what the holy spirit and it was just a few days later the same fearful band of christ followers were out in the middle of the concourse on the biggest festival in jerusalem with thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of jews Many of who crucified Jesus just 40 days earlier, 50 days earlier, these same fearful little sheep are standing out there in the middle of the city and saying, you crucified the son of the living God, who God raised from them. They're preaching this 
blistering sermon. Where did they get that kind of courage from? I mean, that's a pretty dramatic transformation, isn't it? Peter, I'll even die for you. And in Jesus' darkest hour, he cusses and says, I didn't even know him. Then they're hiding in the upper room to Peter preaching the sermon. And at the end of that sermon, 3,000 Jews gave their life to Jesus. By the end, 5,000 more, 8,000 like in the first week. This word Jesus used for the Holy Spirit is comforter, it's advocate. It's the Greek word paraclete, which means comforter, encourager, counselor. How many of you have a comforter, an encourager, a counselor in your life? Just raise your hand. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit now. I'm talking about a friend, a comforter, an encourager, a counselor. Aren't they priceless? So important for us to have that go-to person where you can just bear it all and they won't judge you at all. They'll just be there and comfort you, speak wisdom to you, encourage you. Jesus says that's who the Holy Spirit is to us. You know, I just had a conversation with my mechanic last week. I couldn't believe he opened up to me like this. But he's working on my car, and he said to me, you know, we've had some conversations. He knows I'm a pastor, so I guess he felt safe. And he said to me, you know, uh, my wife has a great job. I've got this. uh, He owns this store. He's always busy. He says, we do really well. We've got a huge house. We've got... You know, multiple cars. We have we take great vacations, he says. And I was about to have a nervous breakdown. He said I I I could I was getting so stressed out. He said so I went to a therapist. I've been seeing a therapist for about a year now, and she said every time I see have a, a successful businessman or woman come into my office, I say the same the same thing to them. You spent the first half of your life building a monster. Now the monster is eating you. And he says, what do I do? And listen to this. I'm going to tell you why I'm telling you the story in a second. She said, slow. So I just went to get my car fixed this week, and he's not there. He's on vacation. And his assistant, Goose, his actual name, has it right there on his shirt, Goose. Goose says that, you know, my mechanic's on vacation. I said, that is really good news. Here's why I told you the story. In 2010, the Lord spoke to me and said slow down i remember going on a break i take a prayer break a couple of them every year i'm going to take one in just a couple of weeks and i was on my prayer break i go to coronado island i stay in a nice place there just rest relax and eat and i remember i had nothing to do i'm on prayer break everything's delegated this is my time just to be alone with jesus and i get out of my car and i'm walking to the starbucks right there along um uh, orange avenue if you guys know coronado and literally, I have nowhere to go and nothing to do. And I'm doing this. I'm walking like this. And I catch myself. I, I stop on the sidewalk. I'm like, what are you doing? I was in such a hurry. I was like, oh my gosh, just stop. The reason I'm going back and forth is I'll, I'll go off the screen and they don't know where I went. I'll get nervous. And so I stopped. I said, slow down. Started walking again. It wasn't matter. And 30 seconds later, I was doing this. I was doing this. Walking to Starbucks to meet nobody and to do nothing. And I thought, dude, you are wound up. We have no idea how wound up we are. I'll tell you this one last story, and then we're going to. When I was in my mid 20s, I had a two week paid vacation. I was on staff at a large church out in East County. And I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do, so I jumped in my 280ZX turbo, popped off the T-tops. I was single. And, uh, and I, I drove to the Mogollon Rim, which is in Arizona, 12,000-foot mountain. I used to camp at when I was a teenager with my family. And I went up there to the Mogollon Rim, got my tent out, got my chair, folding chair out. I'm sitting up there on the plateau looking down 12,000 feet. And I'm sitting there, I'm just, oh, man, just looking at these trees. I got two weeks. Do whatever I want. After about an hour, I got kind of bored. And so this was, this was a milestone in my life. I hope it helps you. And um, I got up out of my chair. I was about to get up. 
to go do something, like hike or something. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, sit. A little nicer than when I say to my dog. It felt the same, though. Sit. Sit, John, sit. I was like, okay, I guess God wants to say something to me. You know, ear, ears back. And he did, I didn't feel anything, didn't hear anything. No thoughts came to me, no revelation. About a half hour later, I'm about to get up, sit. Like, oh my gosh, am I in trouble? You know, I sat there. Eight hours later. I didn't want to get up. About every hour or so on the inside, I thought I was completely decompressed. And then all of a sudden, ooh, like, whoa, what's this floor? I haven't been here in a while. And then about an hour later, ooh, whoa, this feels awesome. Ooh. What's this? I was like, I was like part of the chair. By the time the eight hours was over, I was like melted on the chair. And that changed me forever. Now I've learned how important it is to take breaks. I allow myself to get to boredom and loneliness because peace is on the other side of this. And so is God. Let's pray. Lord, you've left us the Holy Spirit to help us in these things. Just open the palms of your hands toward heaven if you would and just receive the friendship of the Holy Spirit right now. Just say, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me with the eternal perspective. See, he's the comforter on the way home. He's your advocate. He's your encourager. He's your comforter. He's your counselor. He may just tell you to sit in a chair. He may speak words of comfort and wisdom to you. Just welcome the Holy Spirit right now. Ask Him to reveal Jesus to you all over again. Ask Him to give you the eternal perspective. See, when you know you're going home, you'll spend your life doing the will of the Father. Ask the Holy Spirit to clarify God's will for you so that you can spend all your energy doing what really matters in life.